Welcome to Sermo Valgaris, a podcast where we unfuck classics so you don't have to. We are John, Leia, and Jack, and this week's episode is titled, Isn't It Mythopoetic? Story. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Sermo Vulgaris. In order to kick things off just right, we're going to be reading a sapphic fragment for you. Leia, John, take it away. Everything. Everything is very small. Everything is broken. That's correct. From the standpoint of the everything and everybody, at least. What I give you is a fragment of me. It's better with marks. Marks of you on it. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Hold on to your yeses, folks, because this is actually part of a real book review that someone actually wrote in the Bryn Mawr Classical Review. Welcome to What's Going On on Classics Twitter, a little segment we'll do every episode just to catch you up on current events in the most incurrent discipline there is. John, give it to us. All right, so what happened was essentially someone named Michael Chin wrote a review in the esteemed Bryn Mawr Classical Review for a book on small and fragmented finds in the ancient world. This review, well, uh, let's just say that it would be pretty generous to call it a review. Um, The title of the book itself was seldom mentioned anywhere in the article, much less any actual content from the book. And the review instead consisted essentially of fragmented freeform poetry that the reviewer described as a written emotional reaction to reading the book. Naturally, this made a lot of people on Classics Twitter very, very rightfully angry. The woman who wrote the book is up for tenure review this year and published a confused tweet about the contents of her review. People quickly backed her up, calling the review a quote-unquote word salad that was simply not the right medium for this sort of formal academic writing. So, yeah, that's kind of what happened. Thoughts? Prayers? Okay. I feel like the only right kind of medium for this type of writing is a 2,000-year-old papyrus that was found in the middle of the desert. (laughs) And as our resident archaeology person, that sounds pretty disrespectful to archaeologists. Like, I keep the poetry that I write about broken roof tiles in my drafts like a normal person. Unless she's eating them. (laughs) (laughs) It's just very detailed accounts of her eating (laughs) the artifacts. (laughs) Gobble, gobble! (laughs) Sorry, not to be disrespectful to archaeologists. I mean... (laughs) All right, all right, we're going to bring it back in. Thank you, guys. Um, one person, this one was my favorite, said the review should never have been published and belonged, and I quote, on a private Tumblr account. <laughs> <laughs> Find the lie! <laughs> okay, um, that's basically what happened. Uh, back to you, Jack. Thank you, John. Okay, that's this week's segment of What's Going On on Classics Twitter. Now let's jump into the episode. Okay, so for today's topic, we're going to be talking about myth. More specifically, what the hell is myth? You know, what's going on? 
We're going to try to answer that right here today, starting with a little segment where we'll talk about what myth personally means to us. And this will hopefully be a great framing device for the rest of the episode, where I'll be taking us through a few theoretical definitions of mythology and just talking about them in the context of classics. So, Jack, Leia, you know, what is myth, myth to you? Take it away. Thank you, John. I'll go ahead and start. So, personally, I'm pagan, which I think is a really important point that colors my view of all mythology. Very often, when we talk about any form of ancient mythology, people treat the religion and belief systems like they're obsolete. They say, you know, this is what the ancient people believed in. No one believes in this anymore. They, they treat it like fiction, which is um, objectively untrue. Hi, hello, pagans are still around. Um, I'm, I'm right here, we're all still here. And because of this, I have a healthy respect and fear of the Greek gods. So for example, one of the gods I specifically worship and venerate is Zeus. And I've seen comments on TikTok saying stuff like, I want to worship Zeus, I want to do this, I wanna do that, but I don't because of this and that myth. Myths are stories. Myths are literally just fan fiction. <laughs> If you are of the group that still regards these gods as gods, then don't let a story that someone made up about them and posted on the ancient Greek archive of our own <laughs> color your opinion about them. Okay, <laughs> okay, my pagan rant is over. But basically, because of this, I'm inclined to treat myths as just fun little stories about the gods that people created in order to try and understand them better. Like I said, myth is fan fiction. Anyone can make a myth. All you have to do is come up with a good, funky story, tell it to someone else, and you've made a myth. It's not a popular myth, but it exists. It's out there. Who are you to know whether that someone else you told is going to go tell someone else, etc., etc.? Boom. Myth. They're just a fun way to try to better understand the world around us. Like, <laughs> the world is a really incredibly confusing place with a lot of genuinely terrifying natural phenomena, so why not make up a fun story to try and explain that? So I'm specifically uh, referring to etiological myths here, which comes from the Greek word aitia, meaning cause. So these are myths that explain and rationalize the causes of the things around us. So for example, lightning. Lightning is fucking terrifying. It's literally a bolt of fire that flies down from the sky and destroys everything it touches. <laughs> Wouldn't you want to rationalize that by saying the king of the gods was given lightning bolts by some one-eyed guys as a symbol of his power? I don't know about you, but I would much rather view lightning as a happy little gift of God, or rather than the literal fear, terrifying lightning... <sighs> <laughs> they're scary okay i'm scared of lightning this is what i'm coming out as, I'm afraid of lightning anyways so another example that's slightly less terrifying is a smaller one such as daphne the nymph being chased by apollo and then she gets turned into a laurel tree to get away from him which then explains why the laurel tree is so sacred to apollo and i can just imagine a kid asking their dad hey dad why is the laurel tree so sacred to Apollo and the dad just coming up with that story on the spot? And honestly, who is to say that isn't what actually happened? It's literally not even a good explanation. If Daphne wanted to get away from Apollo so bad, why didn't she get turned into a bird or something? Like, wh why would she want to be transformed into something that is literally rooted into the ground while she's running away from a scary man? No offense to Apollo. He is very scary. <laughs> 
that's my pagan showing. Um, but basically, like the plot holes are endless. They're all just stories. And the world is so confusing and scary and terrifying. So why wouldn't you want to make fun of it? To make fun of it. Facts. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Make fun of it. Basically, <laughs> the world is confusing and scary and terrifying. So why not try to make sense of it with fan fiction? Okay. End scene. <laughs> Thank you, Leia. That was very nice. Leia, you amaze me and you're right. Myth really is fanfic, you know? And now I'm going to paint a big-ass picture of the future of classics or lack thereof if we don't buy into this idea of myth as fanfic. It's a little bleak, but it's only because I'm concerned. I have many thoughts and prayers on this, stemming largely from my experiences as a very famous and relevant TikToker. (laughs) (laughs) TikTok has not only informed my conception of myth, but has tied it to the field of classics in general. You see, my booming TikTok career thrives and perhaps survives on the shared belief that there is no mythological canon. (laughs) The outstanding content I create, I will stop now, doesn't necessarily (laughs) depend uh, on myth because I recognize that myth depends on us, on what we create. What I mean is that there's no such thing as a singular narrative to cling on to, but we cling on to it anyway. Literal dust. We are holding on to nothing. It's worse than bad faith. It's abysmal faith. And it's dangerous, in my opinion, because what we do know as fact is that classics is a dying discipline. The classical world is dying in our common imagination because we leave nothing to the imagination. We leave it to academia like it's some God-given institution, like there's something inherent outside of us that will perpetuate classics for us. What I've learned is that nothing about myth is sacred. Classical reception is crude but necessary, and it's crude in the sense that there's always going to be an element of controversy in every product. Every time someone like a Madeline Miller interprets a myth, we are perpetuating the story, and the second we let the story die is the second we leave the ancient world to the test of time, and it will fail. Myths aren't over. They are malleable. The fact of the matter is, the Song of Achilles is myth. Lore Olympus is myth, and our TikToks are myth. If we keep saying to ourselves, I don't accept blank because that's not the actual myth, my TikTok career tragically dies. And not as tragically, but still pretty sad, classics dies too. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, guys. Classicists are storytellers with a major responsibility, a responsibility that most of us fail to recognize. Our job is not to define, but to perpetuate, as I've said. Every subject in the humanities is intrinsically pleasurable, but in classics, you have an intrinsic task. To do classics is to become classics. To destroy classics is to save it. We must deconstruct myths in order to rebuild a new and better version of classics, one that will survive outside of academia and outside of our self-defeating ideals. In my opinion, a classicist is not somebody who has mastered the study of the ancient world but someone who has mastered the art of manipulation. Nothing is sacred. Myth is especially not sacred, and we can't afford to treat it as such. And with that, John? That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, Again, Leah and Jack, those were both amazing. So I guess on to little old me. So um, this might be more of like, why is myth? cool to me than strictly what is myth to you. But I really want to touch on the really fascinating and doubly important fact that mythology is more than just a matter of personal experience. You know, it's 
more than just the stories as stories it's more than just how you feel you know as obvious as it seems i think we tend to forget that myth is also deeply societal and ideological and it's why i've always been such a massive proponent for expanding the definition of myth beyond the realm of like the overtly religious or otherwise story-based stuff like oh kind of like oh only creation myths or only Iliad type stuff counts and that's just not right that's just not correct and I really want to examine mythology instead as like a foundational institution for the way people conceptualize of the very worlds around them and still do you know one of my favorite examples I like to use to really stir the pot is the idea that modern sort of rationalist or post-Renaissance modes of thought we've inherited as, you know, quote-unquote common knowledge or quote-unquote universal truth or whatever is a little bit mythological and symbolic form that we used to anchor ourselves existentially in a universe we don't actually understand as nearly as well as we think we do. You'll notice, you'll notice, dear listeners, that I talk about this a lot. I bring this up in context that you would not imagine I could bring this up in because I am obsessed. I am obsessed <laughs> with a dear art historian named Erwin Panofsky. One of the most foundational texts I read that really yeeted me off into postmodernism <laughs> and convinced me that all cultural ideas and institutions ought to be considered mythology was an essay called Perspective as Symbolic Form. And it basically argues that Renaissance era sort of like one point perspectival painting isn't actually a totally correct way to represent three-dimensional space, but has been taken as a symbolic shorthand for it so much that we've come to associate that kind of perspective with like universal or objectively true ways of seeing things. Beyond that, you know, also, mythology is just something that's also very deeply, deeply political, which we cannot ever forget, and which is something I think Jack and Leia both touched on in their description of myth as you know, ideological and fundamentally malleable, you know, it always suits its current social context because it has to. That's one of the main purposes of humans sharing stories and sharing ideas with each other. So I wrote a paper on nationalist mythology and national religion in high school that touched on this a little bit, but mythology or sort of stock stories as propaganda or at least like a symbolic shorthand for certain types of ideas is still well and being used today. You know, like the, the Roman gladiatorial arena, for example, undoubtedly is used as an institution and sort of pretend landscape where they can reenact stock stories from Roman history and mythology in order to reaffirm like real social hierarchies and quote-unquote national identities. Like for example, you don't go to watch a pretend battle between Carthaginians and Romans and not come out of it having in some way reaffirmed your place in the world as a spectator, as a Roman subject, you know, who you are, your ethnic background, what it means to be and to really perform being Roman. You know, the way we conceptualize of everything today, I think, should be taken in the same way, you know, from popular holidays like Thanksgiving to say, nationally important sports like hockey for us Canadians or football for Americans is inseparable from our identities. You know, all of that should be considered, I think, in a similar light. It's all fundamentally mythology. Wow. Amazing. Fantastic. Brain's so full. So very full. All right. Okay. Um, Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Okay, so so with these opinions as like a springboard, I've prepared three competing definitions of mythology. 
that span both space and time. And we'll be talking about each and how they sort of fit or don't fit into our discussion of classical mythology. And I'm, yeah, I'm just going to take us through them. Before we start, we just want to butt in and say, this is really complicated material. When we and our amazing off-screen writers were compiling these definitions, we knew these things wouldn't be so simple, but these are incredibly worthwhile concepts and we're going to help you through it the best we can. That's right. Uh, thanks, Jack. Uh, moving on. So I want to start us off in the realm of the familiar, as far away from ancient Greece as possible, and also as close to our own culture as you can get. Because of that, I really want to start us off with the definition offered by the Merriam-Webster English Dictionary. So, we obviously don't know who actually wrote the definitions for this dictionary entry, but- Miriam. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> Can't you read? You're right. Miriam Mer themselves wrote this dictionary entry. Miriam goes through every single one. <laughs> Show some respect. Webster's just 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 the person who who handles the fight. Miss Mrs. Webster. <laughs> Webster's the accountant. <laughs> it's a partnership as old as time. <laughs> the, the dictionary entry writer and the accountant. Yeah, it's oh, a wait. capitalist love story. <laughs> Anyways, moving on. Um. So they offer two definitions. Definition A is, um, and I'm quoting now, usually traditional story of ostensibly historical events that serves to unfold part of the worldview of a people or explain a practice, belief, or natural phenomenon such as creation myths. Um, and also another competing definition, B, which is a lot more vague, which is um, a popular belief or tradition that has grown up around something or someone. Obviously, both of these definitions are modern conjecture, based, <laughs> modern conjecture based on grammarists and linguists whose jobs are to analyze the way people use these terms just colloquially today and put them out there just so people kind of know what other people are talking about. So... I definitely don't, first of all, want to blame Miriam <laughs> for, for writing these like this. Blame Webster. Yeah. But I feel I like him. this is just a pretty good place to start. You know, it's familiar and that is, you know, defining what mythology tends to mean to us as modern people. So, first of all, any, any thoughts? Ostensibly. Fuck out of here. Someone get the dictionary for crying out loud. <laughs> Dictionary they the dictionary. Use, they, they're trying to get you to use the dictionary more. Oh my that's god. Webster. That's Webster's genius. That's oh my god. Webster, Webster is the mastermind. Wow. He's the okay. salesman. Any like serious theoretical opinion. <laughs> yeah. Something about these definitions just rubs me the wrong way. I don't know. I think that I can't help thinking, like there's there's two ideas, I guess, of myth. And I guess that's what they're defining here. A is the myths that, like, we are talking about, you know, like I said, Daphne and Afloat. And then B is, like, if you swallow your gum, it's going to be in your system for seven years or something like that. And Interesting. <laughs> that's just all I can think. 
which isn't I know that's actually um, my favorite myth <laughs> that's my favorite um, it goes Trojan War is actually second to that to the gun myth <laughs> I, really I guess that's the problem I guess that's kind of the problem the spider myth I really like the spider myth you know the one that's like oh if you sleep you will eat eight spiders oh, that's why i don't oh sleep oh my god that that you know that's actually incorrect because <laughs> spiders george who lives in a cave and eats a thousand spiders a day is an outlier and should not have been counted <laughs> is that that's a really dead meme moving on anyways <laughs> um, so what I both love and hate about these definitions is that they both really depend on two main factors, you know? And you can basically boil both of these definitions down to these two things. Um, one is the idea that myth has to be popular, you know, it has to be something that most people believe or that is otherwise spread around virally. And second is the idea that myth has to be wrong, you know, that mythology has to be fundamentally disproven or disprovable. And I don't know, I personally think that this idea of mythology is pretty problematic for a lot of reasons. Tell us. Um, well, I mean, obviously, like, this is kind of how people popularly define myth. And it'd be kind of hypocritical for me to be like, the popular definition of mythology is wrong. It's, it's a myth. <laughs> Um, that would be hypocritical of me, and I'm seeing that now as, as I am trying to explain this, but it rubs me the wrong way, first of all, just because I, I think it's like, I don't know, like this strange conflation, I think, between popularity and sort of like untruth, I find very interesting. It's such interesting. like, it's such like a Greek, like almost aristocratic sort of notion that like the masses are wrong. Something that is popular, something that is emotionally felt, something that is transmitted orally, for example, is fundamentally less valuable, is fundamentally less correct than something that is written, something that is presented in a certain academic register, you know, it's fundamentally less valuable than something that the few know to be true. And I just think that's such an interesting kind of like perception of mythology, you know, the idea that the two most important parts of what make a myth is that most people believe it and that it's wrong. It's just, it's, it's really interesting, you know, I can't help but see a little bit of a remnant there of like sort of really very Greek ideas of knowledge and um, aristocratic ownership of knowledge. I mean, 21st century North America really just is classical Athens. <laughs> No, I will not elaborate. Leia, did you want to say something? Yeah, no, I just wanted to add on to John's point. Um, how can something that explains so much truth of societies that they come from be called like inherently incorrect? If they, exactly. they tell us so much about those societies. It's straight up hubristic. And it is. Hubristic because like the thing about mythology that I think a lot of people misunderstand, or at least what I think, I think a lot of people misunderstand is that Mythology is sort of like dead baked into the very fabric of our societies. You know, nothing about the way we live is natural. Nothing about the way we live is based on an exact set of algorithms or on an exact predictable science. And I, I think, you know, sometimes we take the um, nature nurture debate just a little too far the other way. And we assume that everything about humanity can be reduced to nature everything about humanity can reduce be reduced to like a set of in it calculable um, decisions or some other kind of objective truth that mythology somehow obscures that like social conventions somehow obscure 
but that's not really how humans work and it really betrays how little value we place sort of in culture to determine a lot of the trends that we hold to be in it or objectively true or otherwise sort of universal to all of humanity i don't know i just find it really sad that's you know this sort of conflation with between myth and untrueness and popularity with sort of pollution is so strong in our modern definitions of what it means to be a myth and be mythologized you know, ultimately, I think what I'm getting at is that I think mythology represents an alternate and really underrated type of truth on its own that isn't directly tangible or observable outside of the society that created it, but it's true nonetheless because it directs real, tangible motion and dynamics within those societies, you know? Constructs create truth around them by shaping the people who believe them, and it's naive to write off, I think, the experiences or the sort of quote-unquote folk knowledge of the many, just because they remind us there's no one way for humans to think or organize themselves or worship, you know, and I really do believe that that's what mythologies are, not just constructs, but entire societal institutions that cannot be taken for granted. Mm-hmm. You know, all of these things are constructs, and it it just, it, it bothers me that people tend to take things that aren't materially tangible as fundamentally lesser when they inform so much of the way people experience the world, you know? The societies they live in, you know, they're constructed. They're constructed phenomena based on irrational things, based on rational mythologies that we continue to tell ourselves over and over again, whether those mythologies be, you know, Apollo and Daphne or, you know, the existence of the bank. Money is a mythology. Okay. Money is a myth. It's true. Money is a myth. And John, you're right. And you should say it. I know you didn't say it. I said it. And honestly, I think this just goes back to like, because I'm a big picture kind of gal like why you know classics is dying at this point we think we're better than it it's dumb we think we're better than it or we think that there's nothing left to explain or that like the world around us should just be accepted as is and like why would you need a myth to explain why there's lightning there just is lightning and it's just like so naive it's so naive and it's just so shallow Mm -hmm. it's boring we have not reached the end of human knowledge. You know, like, decades we'll never. ago. never. Never will. Decades ago, scientists genuinely believed that Black people did not feel pain in the exactly. same way people did. Facts. We are constantly re- like, reimagining the way we do science, and as a result, we are constantly revisiting what we held as universally true. You know? You know, like, the idea of, like, there being a clear divide between mythology and truth, or a clear divide between emotion and logic. Those are mythologies. Those are fundamentally, like, not true if we're to use that definition of mythology. Mm-hmm. You know, those were things that we created for ourselves to feel better about our own cultural movements and to give ourselves a sense of existential purpose. They're not, they're not really universally true. This is a postmodern podcast. This is a <laughs> postmodern podcast. You're, you're here listening to, um, three postmodernists avow that nothing is true. I'm actually Foucault. Everything's gonna come back <laughs> to that. I'm really sorry, guys. Oh no, it's fine. We deal with it on the podcast and off the podcast, so we may as well. So yeah, um, that's one of the definitions. I think we've talked long enough about why we think Merriam-Webster is a little... We know, we stand Merriam. We, we um, are suspicious of Webster. I got my eye on it. Point no, is, more than that, more than that, once again, I just want to kind of do a little disclaimer. 
I don't blame grammarists or linguists or Merriam or Webster um, Why? For, for this because once again, dictionaries are not the authority and that I think plays also into another really important idea of like, where do we get legitimacy? Where do we get authority? Where is the divide between myth and truth? Is that a lot of people seem to think that the dictionary is an authority on language. It's not. Um, the dictionary, there is no um, official English academy you know, unlike French or Spanish. No one decides, no no one decides, like, what is objectively a correct usage of the language. It is popularly decided. Um, Yeah, yeah, and dictionaries are only really there to sort of, like, describe phenomena, linguistic phenomena that are already happening around them. They don't prescribe those. So I'm not mad at Miriam. I'm just mad at people. That's sure. The dictionary is a myth. Exactly. I'm just mad that I think a little bit that people tend to continue to hold on to these like very reductive ideas of what it means to be mythologized, what it means to be true. There we go. This is so paradoxical. I have a headache. (laughs) All right. um, Moving on to the next definition. So... The second concept that we're going to be talking about, the second definition that we're going to be talking about is one that I put here just for fun. Um, In one word, it's wild. It's Mm. really the best way I can describe it. It's just wild. Um, I put it in here not necessarily because I agree with it or even necessarily that I disagree with it. It's just, it's such a strange concept, just such a strange theory that I really can't say for sure that it is a concept. It's quirky. <laughs> I just really wanted to put it out there because, well, I feel like it makes a really unique thought experiment. Then give so, it to us, John. Once upon a time, in the far, far distant primordial land <laughs> that is 1970s, <laughs> um, there was a man. There was a man, a man who hailed, I think, from the Netherlands. He was Dutch, I think. Um, His name was Henri Franfort, and um, (laughs) quickly came up with a theory. This theory is called mythopoeic thought. And essentially, what he believed, what he posited, was that... um, there is a hypothetical stage of human thought, of human evolution, more or less, that preceded modern, rational, scientific thought, where um, humanity was not capable, or at least did just did not think in terms of like generalized, impersonal, universal laws, but that instead they believed that each and every event was an act of will on the part of some kind of like personalistic individual being or force. You know, for example, if a boulder were to fall on one mountain and also on another one, they would believe, for example, that there was not one universal unifying law or force that caused both of these similar events, but that, for example, there was a god on one mountain that was unhappy for one reason, and a god on another mountain that wanted the boulder moved for, like, a completely different reason. And, yeah, basically that all phenomena in nature were individualized and personalized, and that because of this, there was a tolerance, there was something he called a tolerance of contradiction, where ancient people 
didn't have to unite different experiences or different divine beliefs under a universal law and that that's why they were able to allow different like ideas and different versions of mythology to exist there's a lot to unpack there Um, there's a lot to unpack you know how leia at the beginning said that myth is how we like make sense of the world this is how people make sense of the world if they weren't hugged as a child <laughs> it's it's wild isn't it um absolutely not, wild and not sad. my favorite theory um the frog falls were really f- fucking wild um him and his wife they they both contributed to this absolutely horrific book it wasn't actually that, okay it was kind of fun to read but like is it a Miriam theories webster it. duo <laughs> if you want it to be um i do and yeah it, it's just <laughs> really wild um and actually there's more there's more um essentially oh, fog believes that um in order for humanity to basically evolve into like the rational quote-unquote scientific society that he lived in or that we live in humans needed to evolve out of mythopoeic thought and be able to rationalize of all natural phenomena as coming from a universal source. And, and he believed essentially that the first step in this was adopting monotheism. <laughs> it, I, oh God. Um, <laughs> he, believed, he believed, for example, that um, the ancient Hebrews were one of the first to really step out of mythopoeic thought by adopting the idea of there being like a single transcendent god, for for a lot of reasons what? this is not true. Um, but for a lot of reasons it's not true. But that's basically what this man believed. He believed that the ancient Hebrews, um, because they I, I guess created according to him monotheism, they were the first ones who were able to see all of nature coming from a single unifying force. And therefore, they were on the first step to being able to see science as a set of universal laws that applied everywhere all the time and therefore, you know, create science. I mean, I'm a Hebrew and I don't know science. So (laughs) I'm not a scientist, but does all... There's not what what is the one unifying scientific force? Like there I'm, we go. We're so perplexed. I think he's by this trying to say that he monotheism. thinks like the first uh, the first um evidence of science is when you're when you think only one god caused everything because then there's only one guy's reasoning to to reckon with. But so I just think that's like, lazy. Oh, the boulder falls that's... in two places at the same time for the same reason because one guy had the exact same justification for both of these events. And that's why they happen, because world creation was the result of one person only. I think that's, that's what he's trying to say. It's lazy. It is lazy. Use it your brain. It's okay to think more than one thing at once. Because by that understanding, science, like I said, not a scientist. Any scientists out there that are listening to this, um, I'm sorry for what I'm about to say about science, <laughs> but... Um, So there's like the law of gravity and then there's other science things such as, you know, life forms on earth are carbon-based life forms and we do things in certain ways because of that. But that has, what does that have to do with gravity? They're different. 
I just don't understand. I just think he couldn't, <laughs> like, I feel like he's just, like, he couldn't, like, fathom a god being human-like or hot. I'm not him. even really sure that that's what he means. I'll get to why I don't think that's what he means. But, um... We're not done? No, there is more. <laughs> oh, no. There is more. I can't believe I'm saying this, but there is more. Jeez. So before, before that, I want to read um, a quote from Mr. Francois about oh, why no. he thinks the ancient Hebrews oh, God. Um, stepped out of mythopoeic thought. Um, here we go. This is from um, his book, The Intellectual Adventure of Ancient Man. Um, That's horrible. When we read <laughs> in Psalm 19 that the quote-unquote heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament sheweth his handiwork, we hear a voice which mocks the beliefs of the Egyptians and the Babylonians. <laughs> no, um, the heavens, which were to the psalmist but a witness of God's greatness, were to the Mesopotamians the very majesty of Godhead, the highest ruler, Anu. The God of the psalmists and the prophets was not in nature, he transcended nature, and transcended likewise the realm of mythopoeic thought. It, it, it gets worse. Um, basically, How? Okay, so- How does it get worse? <laughs> okay, we already have established that he thinks the Hebrews are, are becoming the first scientific people because what? even though they see everything as divine, they see the divinity coming from a single source. Well, then, then it, it takes a weird turn. Um, weird. Rolfall then goes on to say that he thinks the ancient Greeks were even more scientific and fully stepped out of mythopoeic thought. What? Now, what? Wait. Pardon. <laughs> That's a contradiction if I've ever heard one. I'm still trying to wrap my head around this. And this is why I said, like, hold your horses on. Like, it sounds like he is too, to be quite honest. I'm, I'm just going to say it. <laughs> I'm calling it. I'm calling the racism card because this man is. <laughs> is there any other explanation for this besides the fact that this guy is racist? Because um, I come basically, to think he of believes it. that um, the ancient Greeks, at least the, the philosophers among them, were the first to develop empiricism. And that because they developed empiricism, that means that even though they were um, polytheistic, they were able to see through divinity and see through mythopoeic thought and to live in a world that was fully rational. But really, because I remember them uh, killing the guy who thought that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Got him. Yeah, no, it was very strange. Um, um, Franfall calls it um, them breaking through the quote um, prescriptive sanctities of religion end quote it, it gets very strange like okay I'll admit you know a lot of the Greek philosophers not really the most religious guys you know same with the Roman philosophers a lot of them straddled a sort of line I think that we would we modern people might recognize like a line between maybe like theism and deism or like a line between religion and agnosticism you know that that's that's something that we know that a lot of philosophers kind of straddled but even then this strange idea that like human evolution was in some way destined to go from like animism to polytheism to monotheism to atheism as like 
a weird prerequisite for being able to develop science is the most absurd thing I have, I have ever heard. And it, there's so many, there's so much mental gymnastics going on here. It's, it's stupid. It's a silly, goofy theory. Because this is a classics podcast, and because we're here to talk about the classical world, and the ancient world in general, by, by extension, can we just talk about how horribly, embarrassingly, like, simplistic and reductive it is to say that the entire Near East was completely mythopoeic, the Hebrews were mostly not mythopoeic, and that the, and that the Greeks were the most scientific and rational of the ancients of the ancients i can't even finish that sentence <laughs> i just think like they're taking i think he's equating myth with something a lot larger yeah no definitely um it's it's a it's a theory that bumps into a lot of um logical dead ends it's problematic for a lot of reasons and it's just really strange because i don't i'm pretty sure that's not even reflected in the ancient world itself you know like we talked about we, we talk about the greeks as sort of like, you know, creators and originators of myth. You know, we talk about them ascribing certain beliefs to um, certain phenomena and ascribing certain personalities to certain phenomena. It just doesn't make really any sense, you know? You you know, like, to varying degrees, kind of based on um, time period and the individual that you're reading, the Greeks definitely subscribed to very mythopoeic ideas. That's the foundation of much of their mythology. I don't think you can argue that there's not, you know, personalization and tolerance of contradiction endemic to their mythologies. Okay. Um, in my one year as an evolutionary anthropology major, Ooh. I just want to say they never mentioned this. <laughs> <laughs> Where the hell was this shit? Not that being uh, an evolutionary anthropology major for one year can give me any sort of um, authority on the topic of human evolution, but I think I can say with some certainty that this was not the course of the evolution of the human mind. That's really weird, because when I read the syllabus for evolutionary whatever the fuck you were doing, um, (laughs) bashing the Greeks uh, was lesson number one. Oh shit, I missed that one. You did? Class. Yeah. Shit, then how did, you, that's why you dropped out, right? Exactly. Like, I, I feel like this Smith of Week thought, and really the ultimate reason why I wanted to use it was because I feel like it's a crystallization of um, a lot of the themes that we'd explored prior in this podcast. You know, the idea of sort of like emotionality or culture being fundamentally um, like opposite of knowledge, this idea of empirical science only belonging to like a certain group of people who conceive of the world in a certain way is just so laid bare here, you know? We're once again kind of seeing this constructed binary between sort of culture and truth, this constructed binary between religious or emotional thought and the capability of a person to think rationally. There's this idea that we have to evolve beyond like our perception of godliness or humanity in order to um, see objective truth. And it's such a funny duality that I think fundamentally places empathy, you know, this idea that you can ascribe certain emotions or certain motivations to things outside of yourself. It makes empathy to be the opposite of knowledge, you know, in order to transcend humanity and be true, you have to 
forget that other people can be humanized too. I think yeah. that my problem with the theory is like, it's one thing if you see, you know, polytheism as inherently non-scientific, but when you assign that scientific inclination to you know the hebrews that just doesn't make sense to me i don't understand it doesn't make sense and also i think it's overly reductive because once again like not all ancient societies were like polytheistic or monotheistic exclusively that's not how the evolution of religion has worked in the ancient world and as classicists we more than readily recognize that you know it happened on a spectrum and especially when we're talking about individual philosophers or otherwise writers or thinkers that we know about from the ancient world their beliefs aren't necessarily congruous with those of their societies you know they absolutely not very individual beliefs that didn't that were often at odds with the worlds they lived in and like it's just so simplistic to say that oh this group of people believed this this people this group of people believed that because at the end of the day designations of polytheism or monotheism are merely modern constructs that we created in order to more easily like label prior societies what they really believed was much more of a mosaic than that it's not just that you're able to like distinguish different societies it's that you're you know you're essentially just labeling the society so that you can then discredit it. Say, this is not us. It's a very Greek thing, you know? It's an other society. When in fact, you know, it was imperative to their, our scientific ideals that we have today. Like, you can't just say that, you know, nothing scientific came out of the ancient world because, you know, they had more than one god. That's just not correct. And I th- This sounds so stupid, but I think you know where I'm going. The binary between science and religion, the binary between myth and truth is the worst thing we've ever created for ourselves, frankly. And it's just, I think binaries and binaries in general, man, we have to- Fuck a binary. Fuck a binary. It's just, you know, like, it's okay to have more than one thing at once. We can use our big brain to make sense of one god, two god- more gods and whatever the fuck you want to call science it's okay to think more than one thing at once it's very silly you want to hear something more silly though that kind of came out of this sure all right so around the same time that mr francois who by the way was an egyptologist just wanted to put it out there really of course he was (laughs) um no offense to any egyptologists that are listening to this if you are but of course he was. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Just so you know, we don't hate e- Egyptologists on this podcast, but you're on thin fucking ice. Anyway, Absolutely. Um, what came out of this was another theory, very closely related, um, in neuroscience called bicameralism. <laughs> and bicameralism um, basically argues that the human mind um, used to operate back in the day in a state in which like cognitive functions were divided between two equal halves of the brain one part of the brain that was speaking and the other half that was like obeying so like a bicameral mind a two-chambered mind and that the only way for humans to have evolved into consciousness and therefore evolved into the ability to create rational and scientific societies was essentially evolving out of the two-chambered brain the two-chambered brain it's so funny um 
he thinks that bicameralism was like ubiquitous like as recently as basically like you know the ancient mediterranean fuck and and that's why like people were able to you know receive gods that's why people were able to conceive of like the world as full of gods and there's just a lot going on in bicameralism but that's one of the little like things offshoots that are directly related to mythopoeic thought but yeah whatever they were on in the 70s and cultural motivations that were floating around in the wild west called the 70s kind of created both of these basically like within the same year basically julian james is saying oh mythopoeic thought well i think that's because the brain had two chambers (laughs) i don't (sighs) it's very funny but um i think that should be enough for um number two i think we've exasperated (laughs) all of us more than enough so brain um, empty (laughs) I think it's time for us to move on to the most ancient of our myth definitions and talk Ooh. about um, the mythos logos distinction that the Greeks themselves believe. Oh, yeah. So for our third and final um, definition, we're going to be going back all the way to the ancient Greeks themselves. This has kind of been what everything has been built up to. So yeah, I really hope that, you know, this turns out to be a productive part of the podcast. Um, We're going to go back to um, a term that the ancient Greeks themselves used to characterize certain types of stories or rhetoric, that term being muthos. Most of you listening have probably caught on already to the fact that muthos sounds, well, a lot like myth and that you're right dear listener that's exactly where we get um our term myth or mythology from you know mythos yeah it's it's a very important term for kind of the way we conceptualize of information and it's one that i think really deserves to be studied in its own kind of environment in the ancient world so we're gonna do that now um And to do this, we're going to start with um, an earlier Greek example, just kind of before going on to like the more classical ones. And as a result, I want to start with the really, really interesting way that the term muthos is treated in Homer's Odyssey. So this is an epic that many people assume was written in the 8th century BCE. So this is definitely much earlier than like the classical Greece that many people will first think of, especially when it comes to philosophy. But I want to use this example to sort of chart the way the term mythos changes in these few very, very crucial centuries. And you'll see what I mean very soon. There's a really cool um, development of the word going on here as we transition sort of like from earlier archaic Greece into the classical. And I'm really excited to talk about it and what it kind of means for our greater discussion of, you know, what is a myth? And yeah, so I'm going to pull out um, a line from book three of the Odyssey. This is line 94 for anyone who's keeping track at home. Um, And this is where basically Telemachus is talking to um, the wise Nestor, King Nestor. And he says- And Telemachus is Odysseus's son, by the way. Telemachus is Odysseus's son. He's our hero by default. I hate Telemachus a lot, but that's a different story. I just think- He's a whiny bitch. Okay, um, moving (laughs) on. Moving on, he says. So I'm at your knees to see if you can tell me about my father's end. 
whether you saw it with your own eyes or heard about it from someone else, some wanderer. Basically, in this line, he's just like, hey, Nestor, you were, you were in the Trojan War. Why my dad not home? <laughs> um, that's what's going on here. But the important thing um, to note here is that last bit, heard about it from someone else, some wanderer. Um, so we're using this specific line as an example, but there's a lot of these little lines kind of peppered throughout the Odyssey. Like, for example, in book four, Telemachus says like the exact same line, the sort of, oh, tell me how my father besiegement is just a really cool recurring stock trope or like a stock line that sort of inserts itself into the epic cyclically and rhythmically and kind of draws more attention to its importance, which is why I'm now going to go back to my original point and just talk about why this line is really cool. Um, so the Greek term mythos is specifically applied in this line, specifically invoked in the part where Telemachus refers to inf the information heard from someone else, you know, heard about it from someone else, some wanderer. There, there's like a very strong quality of transmission here that's being treated as most inherent to the definition of mythos. And you should note that Telemachus isn't discriminating against like where the source is coming from. He's not like, oh, if you heard it from someone else, the information is worse. He's not making that judgment explicitly. Right now, at least, the term mythos doesn't really have a strong or really any connotation of truthfulness or lying. It's just kind of like information being passed around, you know, it's not really about truthfulness. There's not really um, an established binary yet, in the Odyssey at least, between um, telling a myth and telling the truth. And, and, and it, would, it would, you know, kind of, that's the theme of the whole book. Like that's the, like, that's the gag. The Absolutely. Um, the whole Odyssey really revolves around this kind of one theme where, you know, a lot of it's just about Odysseus telling people stuff. And some of it's a lie, some of it's not. Most of it skirts a very strong gray area between lying and truthfulness, where it's just kind of showing off his craft as an orator. And it's really here, like the idea of oral retelling, the idea of just speaking well, is really what kind of defines mythos in this context. It's not about truth. You know, at this point, you know, in the Odyssey, truth is not defined objectively the way we might define it, but it's instead, it's a contextual thing. You know, truth is contextual in the Odyssey, and that's kind of the biggest takeaway, the biggest theme from the entire epic. So when you look at it here, you know, in its kind of 8th century development, you see Muthos in the context of, if you say it, it's a myth, you know, like, kind of going back to um, what Leia said earlier in the podcast about like, oh, a father just kind of makes up the Daphne thing. He says it, it's, it's mythos because, you know, the, the real only definition of mythos here, at least for now, is about, you know, saying something orally. Sorry, what I'm hearing is that I have the same brain and conception of the word myth as an ancient Greek. Ooh. Yes. Congratulations, Leia. I'm Homer. You are. We, I knew it all along. I thought, it, I, thought it, oh I thought you were Sappho, but I guess you were Homer. Put on your Peplos, Leia. Put on your Peplos. We know where you belong now. Not oh, only are you big brain, you're Greek brain. Oh, and it shows. Mazel tov. Thank you. Okay, continue, all John. Right. <laughs> all right. Um, so now we're going to compare this with um, a description of mythos that occurs a few centuries later, 
kind of in the classical realm that many of you listeners might be more familiar with, where we see a sort of historical development happening. And this divide between myth and truth is becoming somewhat more concrete. You know, it's no longer just a myth is something that you say that is transmitted, it's information that's transmitted, but instead there's like a, an element of untruthfulness to myth. But it's also not nearly as clear cut as people might think. There isn't really an established binary yet. And um, to draw on this, I'm going to be using Plato's Republic. I know Plato's Republic. I, I'm not a big Plato fan, but he's, he, he said some good things sometimes. <laughs> okay, so um, in book two, of um, the accursed republic. Socrates basically says, um, open quote, we begin by telling children mutoi, um, that's the plural of um, mythos for anyone counting, which are false in general, but there is also truth in them, end quote. Um, this sort of illustrates the way like the use of the word has definitely changed from the eighth century to Plato. And he was like this fifth, fourth century man. So, you know, a, li a little bit of time has passed. Editing John just kind of coming in. Just, just to say that, just to clarify, because I realized the time skip wasn't clear enough. So yeah, enjoy the rest of the podcast. That's a really important distinction that I want us to be thinking about as we kind of move forward with like, what is myth? Because the Greeks didn't really have a unified version of what myth was either. This was something that was subject to change over time between individuals in different traditions and disciplines. And um, what I think is really interesting here is that quote unquote Socrates uses the word pseudos to characterize mythos. Um, the term pseudos is another Greek term which has a very strong connotation with untruthfulness. Um, depending on the context, it can either be like a fiction, or it can be a straight up like malicious lie. But no matter sort of what strength or register of the term pseudos is invoked, it always carries an element of untruthfulness. And by connecting pseudos to mythos, he's making a very bold assertion that we didn't really see in the Odyssey that, you know, myth is fundamentally untrue. That's one of the um, characteristics of myth. And you'll also note that that's one of the characteristics of myth that have stuck around into the 21st century. So this is a pretty crucial moment in history for us here. But it gets more interesting. It gets more interesting. <laughs> um, so later on in book two, Socrates refers to Homer's writings as, you know, mythoi, which shouldn't, shouldn't surprise anyone. But he says that there's some truth in mythos because essentially um, mythos educates the young and through mythos, the values of society are taught to them through these sort of constructed, you know, intangible, untrue stories, young people nevertheless learn how to behave, how to comport themselves, how to cooperate within a um, established society. This is a training ground, an ideological apparatus for um, learning what it means to be Greek. And this is really, really interesting. You know, Plato is basically recognizing the power of fundamentally untrue unprovable or intangible concepts as in fact lying at the foundation of society it feels almost like an almost like pseudo constructivist sort of argument you know what i mean Where no sort of i don't know what you mean big word can we just have a little clarification of constructivism yes please Okay, um, so basically constructivism is sort of like, it's, it's more of um, 
a modern philosophical con concept than anything else and it's probably a little bit anachronistic and irresponsible for me to <laughs> be using it in this context but who cares it's 10 a.m um yeah, it is um, it's 11 a.m sorry continue okay um and basically it's this philosophical view that um you know, nature, science, or society basically constructs of mental constructs um, that are created in order for people to sort of establish their societies. Basically that most of the things we associate with our society is, you know, with like science, with morality, with, with you know, social institutions, all of these things aren't really universally objectively true, nor are they really tangibly there. They're intangible sort of myths in a way that we have basically passed around between ourselves and we have constructed for ourselves to believe in in order to create like a crux upon which society can exist you know basically everything's fake but that doesn't mean it's not important oh my gosh very interesting thank you yeah and i feel like i don't know if i'm like reaching a little bit here but i feel like plato almost a little bit of a pseudo-constructivist argument here where he's sort of recognizing that you know our stories are false. They're constructed narratives that we have fashioned for ourselves about our societies and values, but they are in some way also true, even if they are false, because they provide the blueprint for how people behave within this constructed society, and they become a tool for teaching people how to place certain roles in this dyna dynamic. You know, it's a way of enforcing and reaffirming certain modes of being, certain identities, you know, it becomes so tangibly important to the very way that society is created and therefore affects real tangible outcomes in people's lives, even if the uh, myth itself is fundamentally untrue. Absolutely. Yeah, he goes on this little rant um, about Hesiod, we love Hesiod, and the story yeah. of Kronos and Zeus. And he basically says that the whole Kronos-Zeus patricide eating children the whole thing should not be told to children um plato does not think this is safe for work um, and he says that basically even if it were true he he doesn't think it's true but he said even if this story were true which once again the idea of like it doesn't really matter if it's true or not because we're just using this to build a constructed society or he's basically saying even if it were true you know even if zeus literally did kill chronos and chronos did eat babies um it shouldn't be told to children, regardless of its truthfulness, because it will encourage young men to do the same to their fathers. You know, he's describing a very powerful, like, moral and social element to mythology here, where the actual truthfulness of the events portrayed is not where the power lies. He's like, you know, death of the characters, death of the author, what really matters in these stories is how they will tangibly affect outcomes in the now, you know, among the people who are receiving these stories. And that's just such a cool, I think, sort of blending between our very, very rigid binary that we have today, I think, between like mythology and truthfulness, where here he's like, it doesn't, it still doesn't really matter that much whether or not a story is objectively true so much as it matters how big of an impact that story can have on society, which does translate into like tangible things. And this really dominates um, the way we approach literature today. Like this is a very modern idea. Um, you know, I just, uh, I just want a quick anecdote. Uh, a follower actually sent us an article about how, you know, they're trying to remove the Odyssey in particular uh, from certain uh, 
you know, from curriculum. And, oh, God, uh, not this article. Was it the Wall Street one? It was the Wall Street oh, one. Oh, my God. Um, and, you know, I just think it's kind of very timely because that's exactly what he's saying, especially about Homer. You know, like, it, they said something about, you know, if it's not in slave, like it's not in the vernacular, if or you know, if it's you know, if hate is the norm, and it's just yes, they have different grounds for why you should ban it. Like he's Socrates is obviously saying, you know, they're lying, um, but it's the same kind of you know consequence that you're. Uh, he's prescribing the same consequences as we do today, of you know, corrupting youth. And absolutely, I mean, stories. I think Plato, one of the rare instances that I think Plato was totally right, you know, stories are kind of the foundation of any society, no matter how objective we like to think of ourselves as. And it's a really interesting debate, um, not one that we're going to get into this episode, but one that we would love to talk about in episodes to come. I kind of want to put that on next week's segment of uh, what's going on on Classics Twitter. Absolutely. The tweets were very funny. <laughs> Hilarious, actually. Very excited about it. A lot of people were up in arms about it, and I'm so excited to talk about things that make people angry. Absolutely. Okay. Um, Speaking yeah. of, back to Socrates. So, yeah, I feel like both of these examples kind of create, like, obviously, I've kind of cherry-picked examples for you guys um, here where I've kind of been able to delineate, like, a clear historical development between mythos and, and logos, for example, but you might be able to see even now that there is really no clear distinction. Even in Plato, he's simultaneously sort of, like, ascribing an untruthfulness to mythos without ever diminishing its importance, and that's a really important thing that I want us to all kind of carry out of this podcast, if nothing else. It's that, you know, something doesn't necessarily have to be tangible or even true to create incredibly vast um, effects on the societies around them, because ultimately it's about what people care about. You know, it's about what people believe and it's about what they care about that ultimately makes the greatest impact. And also I just want to remind us again that the ancient Greeks didn't possess the exact same philosophical binary that 21st century people have, like the same hangups about like myth and truth, where we think anything that's wrong is a myth. Um, there is a transition, but it's very much a murky one. And we definitely should not ever be drawing the distinction between myth and truth in such a clear binary when it comes to discussing um, mythology in the ancient world and as we discuss more mythology in the future of this podcast i just want us to remember that myth and truth very modern construct and if we're to take things the way the ancients would have taken them if if we're to take them on their own terms um that's a really important thing that i want us to kind of carry out of it so yeah okay that's kind of the end of what i've prepared for you guys um so let's just wrap it up by going around and sort of answering the question, you know, what did we learn today? Guys? Well, thank you, John, one, thank for you. teaching Amazing. us so much today. Thank Ooh. you for this lovely information. I think I learned a few things. One, I'm Homer. I'm, yeah. I've accepted it. I'm kind of just proud of myself. Um, two, I do want to go back on what I said earlier about what I think myth is, and you kind of convinced me a little bit otherwise. You know, I said that I just view myths as as not true, just fun little stories. 
But I'm going to go back and say that there's so much truth in a myth, as we have realized. It, they teach us so much about these societies that they come from, especially with this final um, definition that you gave us, that lovely section from the Republic. Thank you so much. Um, I, yeah, I just want to go back and say, I take it back. There is so much truth in myth. Honestly, I think that maybe I've been convinced that there's more truth in myths about the societies that they come from than the truths that people claim to make about those societies, if that makes sense. Um, so thank you, John. Jack, wh what did you learn? Well, first and foremost, we got to keep an eye out for Webster. <laughs> and we are now Miriam Stans. Um, theory is hard. It's tricky. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, I don't know. John, how do you say that guy's name? You know um, the guy. Um, 70s were wild. Theory is really hard. Um, and some people, some people are able to convince other people that they know what they're talking about. Um, don't trust an Egyptologist. Don't mm. trust someone from the 70s. Do never, never, ever trust an Egyptologist from the 70s. Oof. If there's one thing name a few modern Egyptologists that I think we shouldn't trust, but you know, that that's a that's a different conversation. That's, <laughs> that's a whole a other episode. Day. Fuck um, you, Colleen. I also want to just, you know, since I'm kind of our uh, our language gal, I just want to say that I really, really enjoyed going through this outline of how Muthos changed just throughout like ancient Greek society, the definition. Because you know, we see oftentimes like in English, the way that the definition of a word can change in just like 20 years. And I think people can be very critical of English in that sense. And, you know, the dictionary, and if someone adds, if Miriam decides to add a word to the dictionary, and then there's, you know, John, you mentioned those the grammar folks, they like to get up in arms and upset about it. But there's the proof here that words are not, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Words are not static. Words are always changing. And I just love that the way that this word muthos has changed throughout just ancient Greek society and now has come down to us. There's three different definitions just in Homer and then in Plato and then in the Merriam-Webster dictionary. And they're all, they're all correct in some way. And yeah, just remember words aren't static. Definitions aren't static and concepts are not static. Absolutely. Like it's so easy to forget. I think sometimes, you know, with, like two to three thousand years of retrospect that ancient societies were not a monolith. Absolutely ancient not. Greece spans such a long time. Ancient Rome spans such a long time. You know, these were societies that were dynamic and constantly changing, you know. One iteration is basically unrecognizable from the next. And I think like moving forward, definitely one of the most important things that we can do for ourselves as we learn more about the ancient world is just to remember that it's not one thing. It has always been a diverse mosaic of perspectives that have changed through time, that have changed by geography, that have just changed by social standing. You know, so many things contribute to the way sort of people conceptualize of the world. And there is really no one Greek tradition. And I think the sooner we um, recognize that, the easier it will be. Um, this is stupid. But when you were talking about that one quote from the Republic and... Uh... Socrates says how the story of Cronus and Zeus, Cronus eating his son Zeus, and then Zeus 
rebelling against his father who's eating his children um, when he says that that shouldn't be told to children, even if it were true, because it'll encourage young men to do the same to their fathers. I just like that it's, um, it's not, you know, this is a fucking terrifying story of a father literally eating his children, and that's why we shouldn't tell it to children. And it's not even, <laughs> this is going to encourage fathers to eat their children. It's, oh no, now if a son, <laughs> if a son sees his father eating his brother, the son will think, I need to rebel against my father. And that's going to encourage violence against fathers instead of encouraging fathers eating their children. It's a very stupid point. <laughs> I just wanted to get it out there. Thank you. Thank you. He is very silly. He is very silly. You know, weird Greek patriarchal norms. At so weird. Weird, just, weird stuff all around. What I do notice also from, you know, how Socrates brings up myth and how, um, Odysseus brings up myth and Homer. Um, it's really all about power. Like at the end of the day, like there is an objective, you know, like we just take, um, you know, a whole other meaning from it. But like Odysseus, like when he told his story, you know, when he told the myth, like he was claiming an authority. Socrates made this argument about myth because at the end of the Republic, he wants to say, we are the only people who, you know, can have a monopoly on this tradition of lying. Like, we can lie the best. And lying is power. And so I think that while today we see these conceptions of myth and we, you know, take an emotional or a literary or so be it um, kind of message from it all, there were stakes for these guys. And, like, it kind of goes back to my larger point of, like, myth as, or, like, what I was saying at the beginning, like, myth as, you know, define, how we receive myth will define how classics moves forward. And just, you know, it's so much bigger than just how you tell a story and what that story means and whether it's truth or not. It's powerful. It's incredibly powerful. And I'm not saying we all have to, you know, be power hungry and, but it's like, (laughs) It's almost just like, like, I, I like myth, myth more than history. So maybe like people always say history is written by the winner. And yes, that's absolutely true. But in the sense, like myth is also like that. Like myth is told by the winner and the person who can wield the most power from, you know, the tradition of storytelling. Fantastic. What a good take. That was a very good take, Jack. Thank you. Yeah, I don't know if you heard me gasp when you said the <laughs> myth is said by the winner. Very good. Thanks. All right. So that concludes this week's episode of Sermo Vulgaris. Before we finish, I just want to spend some time to remind you that this is really hard stuff. For many of you, this might be your first time being exposed to the more theoretical discussions coming out of antiquity. And we just want to reiterate that it's okay to feel confused. You may not get it right away. We get confused all the time. But if you do feel inspired by anything that was said during this episode, or you just want to learn more about how myths are theorized by scholars who aren't crazy people from the 70s, we put up a bibliography and reading list for each and every episode on our website at sermovulgaris.squarespace.com. That is sermovulgaris.squarespace.com, which we highly recommend you check out. Also, if you have any questions or just want to chat, 
feel free to email us at sirmelvulgarispodcast at gmail.com. That is sirmelvulgarispodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>